Um, welcome to Oxford. And if you're a little bit alarmed by the rule-breaking split infinitive in my title, remember that we should say boldly to go, or to go boldly, but not to boldly go, um, then panic not. Reaching out beyond the known and the familiar is what studying classics at university is all about. And no one can illustrate that better, I think, than the wife-eaters and arithmetically challenged cows that we're going to meet today. They force us to venture further afield um, in the world known to the Greeks and Romans and remind us of how much pure fun there is to be had in reading ancient texts. The ancient world sometimes seems um, remarkably familiar and recognisable, but it's always diverse and sometimes a very peculiar place. OK, well, let's think about mapping new worlds. The world is constantly opening up through history. The opening of horizons generates new ideas about what the world and its inhabitants are like. Whether we look at Herodotus, who examined the worlds of Persia, Egypt and Scythia, or at the Greeks, who trailed east after Alexander the Great, or at the Roman imperialism, um, or the Arab geographers who redrew the world, or the 16th century Europeans who imagined the new world of the Americas, or the British imperialists who described the world under their sway, similar themes emerge. A more recent expansion of horizons is the opening up of outer space, imaginatively brought to life by the travels of the Starship Enterprise, for those of you who um, ever watched Star Trek on TV. What I want to stress today is that mapping doesn't necessarily produce ordnance survey type representations, but can, it can mean mapping in terms of the nature of the landscape, the animal life and the customs, the food, the appearance of the inhabitants. Um, I suppose that's what we might trendily call mental mapping. And secondly, I want to stress that there's a tendency to see the new or the unknown in one's own image. In stories about outer space, that means that the inhabitants of the new galaxies are different from us, and that's very important, but they're not unrecognisable. They may have one eye instead of two, or a strangely shaped head, or unusual clothes and a funny voice, but they don't quite escape the human form. You can still hold a conversation, negotiate terms, share a meal, even with aliens. The world of outer space has to have some points of contact with our world in order for us to make any sense of it, at least in a TV programme, and map it out in our minds. And it's the same with the way in which the ancient writers visualised the exotic lands and peoples at the edges of the earth. Um, alien, certainly, but possible to relate to the known, and indeed sometimes remarkably familiar. Well, I'm not going to focus on Star Trek. It's uh, a very old programme, probably most of you never even heard of it. But on some Greek, it's a program I used to hate as a child, um, that's why it's on the mind. But I'm going to talk about some Greek explorers and how they dealt with the alien world they discovered. How did they describe it? How different did they think people on the edges of the earth were from themselves? Most of the explorers we'll be looking at, you might not have heard of, probably won't have heard of, and that doesn't matter at all. But I'm going to start with the Odyssey, partly because I hope most of you have heard of Odysseus, and partly because the Odyssey is effectively the earliest Greek travel text. So, Odysseus, the first great literary explorer. You might argue that Odysseus isn't really an explorer at all. He doesn't set out to find new places and peoples. Expeditions to Africa by Livingston and Napoleon, or the 16th century discovery of the New World of America, we know about people like Marco Polo and Christopher Columbus. They set out to find something new. Odysseus, by contrast, isn't looking for adventure. He's had enough of that at Troy. He's just on his way straight back home to Ithaca to see his wife. When disaster strikes, he gets blown off course and ends up in fantasy land. 
but this is a world that he explores whether he intended to or not, and it sets a pattern for how later Greeks would write about the worlds that they discovered. Let's look at what Odysseus finds. First, the lotus eaters in book nine. Lotus is not just a magical food, which makes its eaters forget about going home, but it's an odd thing to be eating at all. It's not your normal Greek meal out. And the Cyclopes next. Even more so than the lotus eaters, they're decidedly un-Greek. They have no laws, they don't farm, they have no assemblies, no social structure, no ships. Um, and when Odysseus and his men appeal to Zeus Xenios, Zeus of hospitality, and ask for a traditional Greek welcome to the stranger as a guest, the Cyclops denies the power of Zeus and eats a couple of his guests, completely perverting the notion of guest friendship. The Cyclops is not only un-Greek, um, he's only just human at all. He's outsized, he has one eye and cannibalistic tendencies. And of course, he's not the only man-eater in the Odyssey. Odysseus also lost some of his companions to the Lystragonians, who harpooned men out of the sea and gobbled them up. The Phaeacians, in books six to eight, by contrast, seem remarkably civilised and remarkably Greek. It's with them that Odysseus stays and recounts his adventures. The Phaeacians have orchards. Women sit spinning in the palace, just like Penelope sitting waiting for Odysseus at home. They're renowned sailors just like the Greeks. They have feasts and games and bards. This is, I suppose, a bit more like the Greek party that Odysseus expected from the Cyclops. They believe in Zeus and they respect the rules of hospitality. But there's something a bit odd about the Phaeacians. Their gardens produce fruit all year round. They live in a newly built city to which their king had removed them to escape the irritations of normal life. They live in a fantasy land, an ideal, not a real city. The world of the Phaeacians is more Greek than that of the Cyclops, perhaps, but we know that Odysseus hasn't reached home until he's back on Ithacan soil and waking up under a nice, safe Greek olive tree. Well, just to draw a few strands together before we move on, scholars have sometimes tried to map the world that Odysseus explored. I think that's something which is doomed to end in disaster and despair. And the same could be said about some of the later Greek explorers. Where did they go? This place or that? Let's try and map them onto, the, uh, onto our world. But a quick survey of Odyssean geography shows that these are the wrong questions to be asking. The Odyssey is about mapping out a world, but it's not mapping in the modern sense. We can't expect to find modern equivalents. We can't put the Cyclops um, or the Phaeacians or Scylla and Charybdis on a modern map because they don't have a precise location. And you might even argue that the Odyssey can't be mapped out because it's not a real journey at all, um, quite apart from the fact that it's in a, a work of epic myth. Um, but note that Odysseus goes to sleep for his journey back to Ithaca from Phaeacia. Perhaps that makes us wonder whether it was all a dream. I'm going to argue that Greek exploration from the Odyssey onwards was all about mapping out the world, but mapping in the sense of difference and similarity to the Greeks themselves. Well, was the world of the Odyssey um, a world of epic myth? The fantasy journey of Odysseus, nothing to do with the journeys of real Greek explorers. We might say yes, but the accounts of Greek explorers work in just the same way as the Odyssey, mapping out a world in varying degrees of Greekness and non-Greekness. And while interest has traditionally focused on the precise routes taken, just as in the voyages of Odysseus, it's possible to map out the world without actually going anywhere at all imaginary journeys being used to create mental maps. 
Well, let's start on the post-Odyssean um, explorers with Pythias from the Greek city of um, Massilia, that's modern Marseille in southern France. Pythias stupidly left behind the sunny Mediterranean and sailed round to Britain, possibly even to Scandinavia or Iceland. We don't have the eyewitness account of this fourth century voyager, but uh, other writers let us know what he thought about Britain, and that was not a lot. According to the geographer Strabo, Pythias talked about those regions in which there was no longer either land or sea or air, but a kind of substance concreted together from all of these and resembling a lung, upon which you could neither walk nor sail. Pythias tells us that Thule, um, this is a sort of mythical island, is the most northerly of the Britannic islands, but I'm not sure that an island called Thule exists at all. For modern writers are not able to speak of any country north of Ierne, that's Ireland, which lies to the north of Britain and is the home of men who are complete savages and lead a miserable existence because of the cold. Okay, well, you can begin to sympathise with Pythias on a day like this. Um, Pythias went on the first package holiday to the Shetlands, I suppose, and complained about the weather, which isn't a surprise. But notice that coldness is not the only non-Greek feature of Britain. The people are savages, their customs are unfamiliar, and just like Odysseus's floating islands, the geography is odd. The whole place for Pythias is made of jelly. Well, there were similar problems if you sailed south instead of north on exiting the Mediterranean. In the heyday of the fifth century, when all of these great classic writers were putting pen to paper, Hanno, king of Carthage, decided to sail down the west coast of Africa. We have what claims to be the Greek translation of a Punic inscription set up when he got back, and that's the account of his voyage, supposedly. We start off okay. <coughs> Hanno passes the Temple of Poseidon, which sounds Greek enough. But as the Carthaginians move further from the Mediterranean world, everything becomes increasingly unfamiliar and dangerous. The Ethiopians are decidedly unfriendly, and reminiscent of the Odyssey, there are men of a strange shape called troglodytes who can run more quickly than horses. The Carthaginians press on, taking interpreters with them, and after coming across some humans dressed in animal skins and passing some crocodiles and hippopotami, Hanno and his companions hit a, a language barrier. The Ethiopians that they meet speak a language which even the interpreters can't understand. If we're thinking about Greekness and non-Greekness, then it's worth remembering that the Greek word for non-Greek is barbaros, giving us barbarian, famously derived from the observation that non-Greeks gabble nonsense. So here we found some genuine barbarians. Undeterred, the intrepid Hanno continues, but he soon encounters the same kinds of problems as Pythias. Pythias sailed so far north that everything turned into a half-frozen sludge. Hanno's voyage, voyage south takes him into a half-molten landscape. We passed a land full of fire and incense, he says. From it, streams of fire flowed into the sea. Because of the heat, it was impossible to, to land. Well, of course, scholars have fallen over themselves to be the first to identify the volcano at issue. But this, I think, misses the key point that the further you go from the Mediterranean basin, the odder the world becomes. My favourite chapter of Hanno's voyage is the final one. It's the point at which the dividing line between man and beast is finally obliterated, and Hanno's confusion is complete. They come to a lake on an island. On the lake, there was another island full of wild people. By far, the majority of them were women with hairy bodies. The interpreters called them gorillas. When we chased them, we were unable to catch them, um, the men, for they all fled from our hands. We captured three women, however, who bit and scratched those who led them and didn't want to follow. So we killed them and flayed them and took the skins to Carthage. 
And the whole account ends, after all of this adventure, in the most matter-of-fact way. He says, we sailed no further because our food was running out. And off they went home and set up the inscription to commemorate the voyage. Just as with the Odyssey, scholars have tried to determine the exact route taken by Hanno. You can find you know, books with maps in Hanno's voyage. But the journey really maps out the world in terms of oddity and strangeness, as seen in the geography, the animals, the people and their customs. And by and large, the strangeness increases the further you travel from the Mediterranean. Agathocrates of Cnidos. Um, he held a series of top posts in the Ptolemaic administration of Egypt in the second century BC, and it gave him all kinds of um, access to documents and literature. He wrote an account of a journey around the Arabian Gulf, the east coast of Africa and modern day Saudi Arabia. Um, although it has to be said, Agathocrates almost certainly never went further than the library at Alexandria. He was very much an armchair traveler, but this is the world that he imagined. His work includes an extensive description of the people who live in southern Egypt and Ethiopia, and his method for distinguishing between different peoples is by their food. As far as Agathocrates is concerned, you are what you eat. And I've given you some passages on the PowerPoint and on the handout to illustrate that. Um, perhaps I won't read them all out, out in full, but um, they'll give you a flavour of the kinds of um, the way in which he differentiates peoples by their diet. Um, the sesame and millet eaters, the marsh um, dwellers who feed on reeds and soft vegetable matter, um, nomadic peoples who eat meat and milk, um, and then the fish eaters by the coast. Fish eaters he's very interested in. He gives you lots of different um, versions of fish eating. Um, they apparently catch their food by stringing out nets on the rocks and waiting for the tide to come in. And um, then when the tide goes out, the sun just cooks the fish and they, all they have to do is eat it. Um, very easy. Um, they apparently don't mind co eating conches if fish is off the menu, and they stockpile conch um, conches for emergencies. And if both fish and conches are off the menu, they crush fish spines full of juice. And every five days, says Agathocrates, these fish eaters make a trip inland and drink vast quantities of fresh water. Fish eaters are clearly odd, but they're also very non-Greek. They show neither fear nor sympathy. They have no set language. They use signs, so barbarian that they don't even gabble as barbarians should. They show no concern for the dead and they leave corpses to lie on the shore. They're the counterparts of Greek culture, without emotion, rational speech or respect for burial. And then Agathocrates comes to um, yet more peculiar peoples characterised by their eating habits. Um, and again, the second passage on your um, um, handout and presentation there. The people um, who dig up the roots of reeds in the nearby marshlands and sort of make them into little um, mush batter cakes. Um, the tribe of the fibre eaters and the seed eaters and the hunters and the elephant eaters, lots of different ways of catching an elephant given there. Um, and not far from these are the locust eaters. And the last of the populations living to the south are the people the Greeks call dog milkers, but their neighbours call them savage barbarians. Um, so these are Barbaroi even to the other tribes. Well, all of that strangeness in the customs of the inhabitants is reflected in the animal life of the area. Some animals are simply exotic, leopards and rhinoceroses, um, blind whales, um, and some belong firmly to the realm of myth, the dog-headed man, for example. And the geography of the region is also peculiar. There's a cliff top pouring hot water into the sea and a place called Snake Island. 
it's obvious that none of this is going to ring very um, familiar to the Greek, um, the Greek reader or the Greek listener. But it's interesting that the golden standard of Greece is never far from Agathocles' mind. In amongst all of this exoticism is a region full of olive trees. But these are, he says, not the same as ours, but the sort that grows there. Okay, so they're a bit like ours, but not quite the same. Even olive trees can have non-Greek variants. Well, as we've seen before with the Odyssey, it would be hard to pinpoint the places that Agathocles talks about on a modern map, although, again, believe me, people have tried. The world of the Arabian Gulf is mapped out um, in terms of its animals, its geography, its people and their customs, here food. Um, and in place of the lotus eaters and cannibals of the Odyssey, we have sesame eaters, fish eaters, dog milkers. But the idea is just the same. I think actually we're quite familiar with this way of thinking. We all know that the French eat snails and frog leg, frog's legs and that the Germans eat frankfurters and the Scots eat, eat haggis and so on. We, can, we could map out our world in terms of cuisine, um, however international we think we've become on that front. We probably still all have some stereotypes in our minds. And the same principles um, apply as we move beyond the relatively normal world, world of dog milkers and gorilla women. We're thinking continually about similarity and difference, how like or unlike the Greeks are peoples on the edges of the earth. Well, Agathocles wasn't the only person to write in Greek about Ethiopia. We've also got an account of the Sisambri, an Ethiopian tribe who had a dog as their king and have animals with no ears. One Greek author, Dalion, tells of a wild animal in Ethiopia which speaks at night and eats children. But such tales really take off when we move east into Asia. Xanthus the Lydian tells the dreadful story of King Cambles, who had a very serious fault. King Cambles ate too much, and one night he ate his wife, finding her hand in his mouth in the morning, that was all that was left of her, and committing suicide in remorse. If we're looking for signs of normality and abnormality, then drinking dog milk like the Ethiopians or even um, Odysseus's camp companions getting eaten by the Cyclops and Lystragonians both seem mild when compared with Cambly's making a meal of his own wife. Babylonia also attracts attention from the Greek authors. One writer called Barossos tells of a sea creature called Oane who used to climb out of the water at night and give basic instruction to men in geometry, the alphabet and architecture. Um, odd, certainly, and very un-Greek. Of course, geometry, literacy and architecture were precisely the kinds of skills prized by the Greeks, but I don't think they would have been um, very impressed to be taught them by some kind of Loch Ness monster. And in Persia, that is, I suppose, modern-day Iran, Iraq area, we find our cows. According to Ctesias, they were, in the royal, they were in the royal gardens at Susa, cattle which could count. How did Ctesias know this? Well, they were, they were um, each prepared to draw 100 buckets of water a day from the royal wells and not a single bucket more, thus proving their arithmetical ability. But for the most peculiar stories of all, we must follow Ctesias to India. India, to the Greek mind, was a land of marvels. Everything was larger than life. Ctesias tells of a spring of golden water and of reeds alongside the river Indus, which were as broad as two men and as tall as a ship's mast. He notes the extreme smallness of the pygmies, but the extreme length of their hair, which they used to wrap around themselves like a cloak. There were miraculous sights to be savoured, tigers as large as lions, with the face and ears of a man and the tail of a scorpion, able to kill anything except an elephant, or terrifying worms, which slithered out of the river Indus at night and carried off oxen and camels for supper. There were the Sciapodes, 
men who used their enormous feet as sunshades. There were men with no noses and men with no mouths. There were 120,000 dog-headed people in India who lived in the trees, understood Indian, but could only bark themselves. And besides these wonders, there were, according to Megasthenes, men who slept in their own ears. All of this is, of course, highly extraordinary and highly un-Greek. And of all the tellers of Indian marvels, Onesicritus, who was Alexander the Great's helmsman, was supposedly the most prone to exaggeration. He told of trees that could offer shade to 400 men, gigantic snakes, rivers of gold, men who dyed their beards. For Strabo, the geographer, Onesicritus epitomised the most extreme end of the spectrum for telling weird and wonderful tales about India. Well, let's think about what kind of a world this Greek mapping gives us. It's clear that we're going to find it hard to place the men who sleep in their ears or the counting cows or the long-haired pygmies on a modern map. Like the world of Odysseus's travels, it's a world of abnormality, divergence from the Hellenic norm. Ancient writers were perfectly clear that cultural diversity was related to location. People, plants and animals were affected by where they were. And by and large, it's the case that the further you went from the Mediterranean, the odder and less Greek things became. By the time you reached the edges of the earth in Britain or Ethiopia or India, the world was scarcely recognisable. But being non-Greek was not necessarily a bad thing. The Greeks had a real appreciation for other cultures, as we know from Herodotus's wonderful work. Agatharchides' description of the fish eaters ends with an expression of approval for their way of life. <coughs> Megasthenes' account of the Indians stresses their lack of theft, their simple and desirable lifestyle. Perhaps even more surprising is the fact that when mapping out the world, the Greeks could not only appreciate variation, but also find elements of their own Hellenic culture tucked right away in the most remote regions. In amongst the oddities of India, and in contrast to the dog-headed men who bark, Ctesias describes a bird which speaks like a human. Now that in itself is odd, obviously, but it's interesting that while most of these birds speak in Indian, in Disti, some of them could also speak Greek, Kai Hellenisti. We might remember Agatharchides' account of the Arabian Gulf, mapped out through what the inhabitants ate. Remember those olive trees, which were not Greek, but Greekish nonetheless. And I didn't quite give you the true picture of Agatharchides' account by stopping with the appealing dog milkers. The story goes on to talk about the troglodytes, not troglodytes this time, troglodytes. They live about as far from the Greek world as you can imagine. Like the Britons or the Indians, they're at the edges of the earth. And some of their customs are correspondingly odd. Stoning corpses and the fact that they don't need to sleep. But alongside this strangeness, we're transported back to the world of Homer. Trogodites, the trogodites have a hierarchical system of drinks, resembling the Homeric division of meat according to status. And we're also taken back to the Odyssey, to the very, back, uh, the very act of bardic entertainment. Because according to Agatharchides, at night the women and children retire into their shelters, but the men sit by the fires singing the tales of their ancestors. You can't get much more Homeric than the figure of the bard. Odysseus himself provides this kind of entertainment, but when he does it, he tells of his adventures among weird and wonderful lands and peoples. Um, and here we find the weird and wonderful peoples themselves doing the most Greek of things. The picture of the Greeks stepping out, um, mapping out a world of similarity and difference as they travelled either in reality or in their imaginations um, needs modification. It isn't as simple as saying that the further you go from the Mediterranean, the less familiar everything will be. 
That might be true, and the Greeks certainly thought there were some pretty odd things going on out there, but they might turn out to be remarkably familiar. Your mental map of Ethiopia might contain troglodytes singing Homeric-style hot songs. Your India might be inhabited by birds that could address you in Greek. Conversely, seeing the familiar in the world of the unknown has its counterpart in the recognition of barbarian behaviour among the Greeks themselves. In the Odyssey, the suitors of Penelope behave in the most un-Greek of ways. Um, they may not have two heads or drink dog milk, but they contravene the rules of guest friendship. Um, in spectacular fashion. And the historian Thucydides would go on to show that there were episodes in the life of Apollos, even of Athens, during which Greeks would behave like barbarians. Most famously, during the Great Plague at Athens or civil strife on, on Corsaira, all of the usual social conventions were forgotten and men behaved like savages in the bid to save their own lives. The Greeks were clearly interested in cultural diversity. <coughs> Authors reveled in it. Wife-eaters and men who slept in their own ears made good stories, just as had the Lystragonians and the Cyclops for Odysseus. It was to some extent um, true that the level of oddness increased the further away you went. But distance wasn't everything. You could find Hellenism at the edges of the earth and barbarian behaviour in the Greek city-states. Well, Greek mapping, just to sum up, clearly doesn't mean mapping in the modern sense. You couldn't fit the accounts of exploration um, onto our own maps, and I think we shouldn't try. All these journeys I've talked about, whether real or not, um, provide ways of thinking about how the world of the Greeks um, could be mapped out in cultural terms. But it wasn't just about the world outside. The question, what are all those barbarians like, brings the further question, what are we like? And that's a theme that Edith Hall elaborated in her book, Inventing the Barbarian, where she talked about how the Greeks used the, um, the foil of the Persians with whom they'd been at war as a way of rethinking about and redefining themselves. My authors are a bit different from the ones that, um, that Edith Hall looked at. They stretch across a broader period of history. They come from all around the Hellenic world, Pythias of Massilia in southern France, Hanno of Carthage in North Africa, and from all over the place. And they've got no obvious enemy to use as a foil for what counts as Greek. That makes the question even more complicated. It's not obvious where to draw the line between Greek and non-Greek. There's a respect for and fascination with the miraculous and sometimes startlingly familiar world that the inhabitants of the Hellenic world encountered. Well, I end with a little coda for anyone who thinks that these ways of writing peoples and places are dead and gone. The map is obviously intended to be humorous. Um, and I should say, I've take, take, taken this from a very good little book um, by Gould and White called Mental Maps. Um, so knowledge that um, I didn't make it up myself. Um, it's clearly meant to be funny, but it perhaps contains a grain of truth as far as our own ways um, of thinking are concerned, not just about the past, but also about our own diverse world today. The picture is not too dissimilar from that which emerges from Pythias, Hanno or Agathocles. Remoteness, hostile climate, the misplaced Arctic Circle, the vagueness of what happens in westernmost Cornwall, deterioration in transport and civilization as you move away from the massive epicenter, the focal point, um, is all very culturally specific. The world seen from a very peculiar and particular standpoint. But whether you um, came to Oxford on an ox court from Scotland um, or set out on a never-ending journey from Land's End today, um, congratulations that you made it, if so. Remember that you may not be um, so very different from the Greeks in the way that you view the wider world. Thank you. Thank you.